So in last Sunday's systematic theology class, we studied common grace. Common grace, which Wayne Grudem defined as the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. The study highlighted God's goodness shown to believers and unbelievers seen in the physical realm, as we talked about the sun rising on the evil and the good, and the good being defined as those who are in Christ. We saw that he has rain fall on the evil and the good. We saw in the intellectual realm where advances in science and technology have been achieved by believers and unbelievers alike to the benefit of believers and unbelievers alike. And as we studied common grace, we were reminded of scriptures such as Acts 14, 15 through 17, where where Paul, when he was in Lystra, Uh, was telling the people not to worship him. But instead, he says in verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Here, Paul is pointing these these heathens, these pagans, these ones who don't know God, to the fact that God is the one who brought them rains, who was the one that that provided for them. And then we also read in Romans 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul writes, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and such things are a list of, of various sins that, had, that he had listed before, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? One of the other realms in which God's common grace was highlighted was in the societal realm as well, where various various human structures and organizations such as government and business and corporations were mentioned. And so in a sense, we think about the society that we live in, economic prosperity, which occurs when businesses do well and when there are certain policies that are in place by the government, Economic prosperity can also be seen as another area where God's common grace is seen. A nation is economically prosperous. All of the people, whether they are good or evil, will do well. And so you may be saying, what bearing does God's common grace have on our study of Micah? Well, let's go back a little to, to think about where we are in this time that Micah spoke. As we began our study of Micah, verse 1 indicated that the word of the Lord came to Micah during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. The mention of these kings indicated that the maximum time period for the book of Micah would have been 750 B.C. to 686 B.C. So if we took the maximum amount of time that those kings reigned, that would have been sort of the, the markers, covering approximately 64 years. And if we went to the minimum time period, 
it would have been 735 BC to 715 BC, covering approximately 20 years. But all three of these kings mentioned in verse 1 served or, or reigned, I should say, in the southern kingdom after Uzziah, who reigned from 792 to 740 BC, and they reigned after Jeroboam II, who reigned over the northern kingdom, or Israel, from 793 to 753. And during the reigns of Uzziah and Jeroboam II, Judah and Israel experienced economic prosperity. They experienced the blessing of God on these kingdoms. And despite God's goodness shown in this economic prosperity, Judah and Israel did not acknowledge God's goodness. Instead, both kingdoms plunged deeper and deeper into political, social, moral, and religious corruption. And so it was into this context that Micah spoke the words of God. In our last study of verses 2 through 7, he began the Lord's first indictment, which included his sovereign summons, where he called all the earth to hear, we saw that in verse 2, to pay attention, Saw that in verse 2 as well. And to behold or look in verse 3 as he announced his coming to earth to bring judgment. And not to bring judgment generally, but to bring judgment specifically to his people. And as we ended our last study, we read in verse 7, All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. On all her idols I will lay waste, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. And here he was speaking about Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Tonight's passage continues God's first indictment against his people and paints a darkening picture of God's coming judgment upon his people. And so with that as introduction, let us stand together to read verses 8 through 16. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Bethleophra, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zeanon do not come out. The lamentation of Beth-Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Meresheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Meresha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. 
Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Please be seated. In tonight's study, we will see Micah's lament of God's coming judgment. We will see the expanding nature of God's coming judgment. And we'll see the appropriate response to God's coming judgment. First, Micah's lament of God's coming judgment in verses 8 and 9, where we read, For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah, and has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. And so why might Micah's words in verses 8 and 9 be surprising particularly when considering what is said, and it should actually be what is said in verses 6 and 7. As in verses 6 and 7, we read of Samaria becoming a heap, planting for vineyards, that he will pour down her stones like uh, stones into the valley and uncover her foundation. So why might Micah's words in 8 and 9 be surprising, thinking about those previous two verses? want to venture, I guess. <laughs> Who was he mourning for? Which people? Yes, Pastor Dan. Southern Kingdom. Southern Kingdom. Okay, if we think about verses 6 and 7. Samaria. And where was Samaria? The Northern Kingdom. Why might it be surprising that Micah is mourning for the Northern Kingdom? Where was Micah from? Yes, Caleb. He was from the southern kingdom. So here we have this prophet in the southern kingdom lamenting or mourning and wailing for those in the northern kingdom. Why might that be surprising? What was the relationship like between the northern and the southern kingdom? Yes, Caleb. They had battles. They had battles against each other. But what did we see, what did we see in the northern kingdom that was different than what we saw in the southern kingdom? Yes, Denise. Well, they both had some prosperity before. Yes, Esther? I remember it's like when the northern kingdom broke off, they were very concerned about people coming to the southern kingdom and worshiping God correctly because they didn't want them to 
then want to join this other kingdom. So they set up their own places of worship there against what God said, trying to keep everyone in the northern kingdom. Correct. What did Jeroboam do? He set up false worship. He erected these bulls in the northern part of the northern kingdom and the southern part of the southern kingdom to keep people from going where to worship? Jerusalem. God had commanded that he be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. And yet, the northern kingdom set up their own system of worship. We get a sense of this divide. If, let's turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And by this time, those who were in the northern kingdom were Samaritans, and they were largely seen as half-breeds because they had mixed in with these other conquering nations. Jesus encounters a woman of Samaria, And we start reading in verse 19, after Jesus has been in conversation with her. He says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. Hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and coming is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. At the time of Christ, there was great hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. But it all began here. It all began with the split between the northern and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom had Jerusalem. It had the temple. It had the proper worship of God. And yet the northern kingdom went their own way. And so to hear this prophet from the southern kingdom lamenting the fact that Samaria, representing the northern kingdom, was going to be destroyed, might be surprising to some that he's doing this. And why might it be surprising? Because some would say they deserve it. They deserve to be destroyed. They've abandoned God. They've been unfaithful to God. And yet, we see Micah here lamenting and wailing for them. And while it might not have been surprising to hear that the northern kingdom's wound was incurable, as we read in verse 9, pointing to the destruction that Israel would suffer at the hands of the Assyrians, it might have been surprising also for those in the southern kingdom to hear that this incurable wound would reach Judah and even the gate of Jerusalem as well. Imagine, the people of Judah might ask, how could the judgment that's coming on the northern kingdom come to us? We have the temple. We follow the sacrifices. We are serving the one true God. And yet... 
here, Micah is saying that this incurable wound of destruction, this judgment on the sin of Samaria is coming to the southern kingdom as well. And that the very gates of Jerusalem will be where that incurable wound, that destruction, that, that, that devastation that is brought on by God's judgment will come. The gates of any city where, where civic and business matters were handled. And so he's saying that this destruction is going to come to the very heart of the southern kingdom. So for the northern kingdom's coming destruction, and it's proceeding into Judah, Micah laments. He mourns. Describing his anguish, Micah continues to use poetic language and parallelism, indicating that for this I will lament and wail and will go about stripped and naked. Going about stripped and naked is likely an allusion to the march of a defeated people being taken captive. And to ensure a fuller understanding of the nature of his lament and the wailing, parallelism is used as well as he says that he will make lamentation like the jackals and he will have the mourning of ostriches. The howl or wailing of a jackal this high-pitched wailing that sounds like crying. If you want to get a sense of it, there are YouTube videos that are dedicated to listening to the, 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 the howling of jackals. And, and it's this very high-pitched howl. And ostriches are also known to make a very low, guttural sound. So this isn't simply Micah feeling down about what is about to happen, but he is a deep visceral, something that you can feel, a deep sorrow for the judgment that is coming upon both the northern and southern kingdoms, showing his concern for the people of both of these kingdoms. And so what, this brings us to our second question, what other scenes in the Bible come to mind as we consider Micah's lament in verses 8 and 9? What other scenes in the Bible come to mind as we think about Micah's lament here. Yes, Terry. I wonder about Jeremiah. Okay. Okay. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. What else? Yes, Enoch. Okay. All right. And, and in what way? Okay. Okay. Well, the people were weeping over their sins, but we're, if you think about Micah and his weeping for other people and his concern for other people, what are some other scenes or examples that we have in the Bible of this? Lamentations. Okay. That's Prophet Jeremiah. Yep. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes? Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah. Specifically where? Or not specifically, but... <laughs> okay. Okay, all right. Anyone else? All right, I want us to look at three, actually, and let's go in reverse chronological order. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. 
Romans chapter 9. And this is Paul writing, starting at verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness or bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Apostle Paul uses very strong words saying that he would rather be accursed if it would mean that his fellow Jews would come to Christ. So we see another example of of someone who was in anguish, someone who had deep sorrow in their heart as a result of coming judgment upon people, those who he saw and knew that without Christ they would go into hell. Let's turn next to Luke chapter 19. Greatest example of this, but we're working our way back. Luke 19, starting at verse 41, and this is after the triumphal entry. It says, and when he drew near, this is Jesus, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. See the Lord Jesus Christ in anguish and sorrow over the judgment that is going to come upon Israel when the Romans invade. These who were in days were going to cry out, crucify him. He stands looking over city of Jerusalem, weeping in great anguish. The last one I want us to look at is 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 1. And here we read of the lament of David. He receives the news that Saul and Jonathan have been killed. The nation of Israel, which was still united at this time, had gone into war against the Philistines, and Saul and Jonathan were killed. And this is his response, starting at verse 17. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it, he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. 
the mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. And now one could say they could understand the lament of David over Jonathan, for Jonathan was his good friend. But David laments over Saul as well. A man who sought his own life. And yet, because he was the anointed one, he was the king of Israel, we see David mourning, wailing, in deep grief and sorrow over their deaths. So these are just three examples from the word of God that we see where Someone was moved to sorrow and grief because of the judgment that had come or the judgment that was about to come on others. And so the question comes to us, how much sorrow, how much concern do we have for others who will receive God's judgment if they are not graciously granted repentance and faith by God? The question comes to us also, If there is sorrow and concern, are we then moved to action? Response to that sorrow and concern, do we pray for their salvation? Do we pray that God would be merciful to them? Do we continue to declare the truth of God's coming judgment despite the consequences that we might face for doing so? We see examples in the Bible of that concerned. We see examples here of Micah's concern and the fact that he was not only concerned, not only sorrowful, but he was moved to continue to declare the truth that God was coming to judge sin, that God was coming to judge those who had rebelled against him. And as Micah laments God's coming judgment, we next see the expanding nature of God's coming judgment. In verses 10 through 15. Verses 6 and 7 of the last passage, just Samaria and the northern kingdom's collapse were declared. But in this section of tonight's passage, Micah displays clearly that God's judgment was going to expand into the southern kingdom. And in this prophecy, he details the path that King Sennacherib of Assyria would take through Judah. In verses 10 through 15, there are 12 towns in Judah that are mentioned. As Micah connects the names of the town 
with what their responses would be as Judah is ransacked and overrun by Sennacherib in 701 BC. There's a map in the very last part of the outline, right before, I think it's right before the prayer, prayer list, and it gives you a sense of where these towns are located. Most, pretty much all of them are in the western part of Judah, in the lowlands of Israel called the Shephelah. And so as we consider Micah's earlier prophecy of Israel's, uh, or of the northern kingdom's fall, which would take place in 722 and 721 B.C., and the destruction through Judah that will be seen in 701 B.C., all of these verses from 2 through 16 cover a period of approximately 20 years. And so we see in verse 10, where he starts by saying, tell it not in Gath. Does this phrase sound familiar? Does it? It should, because we just read it. (laughs) What did David say as he began his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan's death? Tell it not in Gath. And in the beginning of this section, Micah perhaps uses the G sound in the Hebrew word for tell to play off of the name of this town Gath. Gath was a well-known city in Philistia because it was the home of Goliath. And so like David's not wanting the news of Saul and Jonathan's deaths to reach Gath, In his lament, Micah says that God's judgment upon Israel and Judah was not to be shared in Gath so that there would be no opportunity for the enemies of God to gloat over the downfall of the northern and the southern kingdoms and to heighten the need for the news of this destruction not to reach Israel's enemies. Micah goes on to say, weep not at all. Don't weep. Don't share the news of this destruction because it's going to be so severe that the enemies of Israel, the enemies of Judah will gloat. There's not to be any outward expression of sorrow or grief. In verse 10, we read the name of the town beth le and it says, roll yourselves in the dust. Well, beth le actually means house of dust. And so Micah is saying, house of dust, roll yourselves in the dust. This is an outward expression showing grief that will occur because of the defeat that is coming to this town and to Judah. In Jeremiah 6.26, there's a call for mourning by putting on sackcloth and rolling in ashes. The locations of the next four towns that are mentioned are uncertain, but they are in the southwest portion of the map. And if you look at the map that's in your outline, you'll see that their circles are not darkened. They're they're sort of clearly indicated uh, because we're not sure exactly where these towns are. But the continual wordplay goes on. In verse 11, Schaefer, the residents are told to pass on your way in nakedness and shame. The word shafir means beautiful. 
And so the people of this town are told, you are to pass on your way, not in beauty, but in nakedness and shame. In verse 11, Za'anan says, the inhabitants of this town do not come out. The word Za'anan means to go out. It could also mean to march forward. And so here it's saying that its residents don't come out to fight, but instead they are to cower in fear. They are to seek to, to, not, to not resist this coming judgment. In verse 11, we read, The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. Beth Ezel, which could also be rendered house of protection, would mourn because there would be no protection. There would be no standing place. There would be no strong place for them to be able to defend themselves against the coming judgment. Verse 12, for the inhabitants of Meroth wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. The NIV renders this Meroth writhe in pain waiting for relief. Meroth means bitterness. And so this town that means bitterness, they are waiting for relief. They are anxious for good, but no good and no relief will come because disaster has come down from the Lord. Yes, this will be the Assyrian army that is invading, but ultimately, who is this from? from the Lord, from Yahweh, and to the very gate of Jerusalem. Verse 13. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Lachish was one of the largest cities in Judah. And was a key city that guarded a main approach to Jerusalem. And because it was considered a fortress city, Lachish was likely a city that housed horses and chariots. Horses and chariots that were used to protect Israel when the kingdom was united, and then was used as a defense for Judah. And these horses and chariots were first imported from Egypt and Q. By King Solomon. We read in 1 Kings 10, 26-29 of King Solomon's bringing in horses and chariots. This is all in violation of the law. In Deuteronomy 17, 16, a violation of the law by relying on the horses and chariots of other nations as their defense. And instead of looking to the Lord for protection, they began to look to their own military might. And so this looking to their own military might may have been the association of of the phrase, it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. And Solomon began this path of looking away from trust in the Lord and looking to their own military. And instead of these horses and chariots being used for defense, People of Lachish are called to harness those horses and chariots 
to flee. Flee the coming destruction. And the reason the residents are to flee is that the northern kingdom's transgressions, their rebellious acts, were found in Lachish. Verse 14. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. Verse 14 starts with therefore. So in other words, because the northern kingdom's rebellious acts are are found in Lachish, are found in Judah, then Moresheth Gath, Micah's own hometown, shall be given parting gifts. The New American Commentary says this about this first part of verse 14. There appears to be a wordplay on the meaning suggested by the name Moresheth, which means inheritance or possession. Judah will have to part with its inheritance or possession, symbolized by the parting gifts, literally wedding gifts or dowry. Moresheth also sounds like the Hebrew word for betrothed. Somewhat as a daughter goes to a new and strange place in marriage, so the people of Moresheth will go into exile to strange surroundings. Or perhaps the sense is that as a father gives a wedding gift to his daughter when, she ma- when she's married and leaves, so Judah must give up Moresheth to Assyria. The dowry paid may also refer to Hezekiah's payment of silver and gold to Sennacherib in Lachish as well, in 2 Kings 18, 13 through 16. In the last part of verse 14, we read, The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. Axib, which is close to the word deceitful, saying that this town whose name means deceitful will be deceitful to the kings of Israel because it will not prove trustworthy in defending the nation against the Assyrian attack. Then God speaks directly, starting in verse 15. He says, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mirashah. The word Mirashah, or the town Mirashah, sounds like the Hebrew word for conqueror. So the town named Conqueror will be conquered. And that conqueror would be Sennacherib. And then we read at the end of verse 15, the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Is that name, Adullam, remind anyone of anything. Any event that occurred in Adullam. Well, once again, we return to the life of David. As you remember, David was running from Saul he and many others with him went and hid in the caves of Adullam. Caves of Adullam were where he fled. It says that Adullam will be where the glory of Israel. And that word glory of Israel actually speaks of the nobles of Israel. We actually read Also, in David's lamentation, 
In 1 Samuel 1, 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. He was speaking of Saul and Jonathan there. Micah is speaking of the nobles, that the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Just as David fled from Saul, just as David was fleeing from one who was more powerful than he, the nobles, those in authority in Israel, would flee to Adullam as well. And so as this list of town ends, or list of town ends, we see that even those who were seen as the most powerful in the nation were not going to be shielded from the coming judgment. And so note that this whole section, verses 10 through 15, is bracketed by events from David's life. But look at the events from David's life that are pointed to. It's not his defeat of Goliath. It's not his reign over Israel. But first we were pointed to his weeping and lamenting the death of the first king of Israel, Saul, and his son Jonathan. And in the last part, we are seeing an allusion to the cave where David was cowering and fearing for his life. And so in the same way, these humbling and humiliating events in the life of David were going to be what the whole nation, both northern and southern kingdoms alike, were going to experience. They were going to be humbled. They were going to be humiliated. And it was all because God was sending judgment upon them because of their sin. And so this brings us to the next question. What does the extent of God's judgment detailed in verses 10 through 15 reveal about the nature of God? Yes, Terry. He has to judge sin. Okay. Yes. He is holy. He has to judge sin. Yes, Hashem. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anyone else? Yes, Esther. I was thinking the details of how the, each of the names of their cities refer to, you know, kind of how he was going to bring the judgment, how it went against what they gloried in, mm-hmm. just how he, those little fine-tuning things that he wants to kind of declare, I know all things, mm-hmm. and I'm going to make it known yeah. who I am. Yeah. He's sovereign. He knows all things, and he will use human means to accomplish his purposes. He will bring his judgment upon Israel and Judah through Sennacherib. This also shows there's no partiality with God. As I said before, the folks in the southern kingdom may have thought, we're safe. We have the temple. We obey the law. We are, we're not like those northerners who have gone and established their own religion. We, we go and we make sacrifice when we're supposed to. We have the temple. We, we are doing everything according to the law. And yet, they still had the sins of the northern kingdom in Judah. And think about this. God punished the sin of the Gentile nations 
by using the nation of Israel. And now God is going to punish the sin of Israel using Gentile nations. Romans 2, verses 6 through 11 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. He would judge sin. He will judge sin. But even as we have gone through all of these various towns, we also see that God is merciful. What city is spared for now? Jerusalem. Jerusalem's spared. God had every right to destroy Jerusalem. And we know ultimately that judgment would come upon Jerusalem in 586. But even in the midst of this judgment, God's mercy is seen as well. So as this passage ends, we see the appropriate response to God's judgment. Verse 16. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. This is God still speaking and he says that the appropriate response to this judgment is overwhelming grief. There should be grief over sin. And just as this passage began with Micah's lament over God's coming judgment, the call at the end of this chapter is that the people of Judah, and those from the northern kingdom as well, who have perhaps even fled to Judah during the Assyrians' conquest of Israel, are to lament. He says, make yourselves. He's speaking to the people themselves. They're told to cut off their hair as a sign of great mourning. And once again, parallelism is used as a bald eagle is used to give a picture of what that baldness should look like. And why is there this call to mourning? People are to mourn because the children of their delight will go into exile. There will be no one spared. And why are the people to respond with mourning to the carrying away of their children? People are to respond with great mourning because children represent the future of any people. And later on, when, ba when Babylon will come and take over all of, all of Israel and will conquer them, what do they do? Take their children, ship them to Babylon, and seek to erase and eliminate everything they knew about their own culture. Instead, educate them and cause them to only know what they want them to know of Babylonian culture. And so tonight's continuation of God's first indictment 
It's a prophecy promising total devastation of the southern kingdom, equal to what occurred in the northern kingdom. This passage, coupled with verses 2 through 7, present a bleak picture. Bleakness that is deserved because of the sin of the northern and southern kingdoms. As the bleakness and the hopelessness of, the Israel, of Israel and Judah's situations increase, we will see, even as we move on in our study, a great demonstration of God's mercy and his grace. For with this promise of judgment will come the promise of salvation. And so as we are finishing our time this evening, how should we be affected by this passage? How should we be affected by this passage? Yes, Terry. We should be moved to pray. We should be moved to declare the gospel. We should ask God for the boldness to be like Micah and others who stood firm for God's truth in their age. We can't fathom how, I guess, uneasy this was, how difficult this was to stand and declare this judgment to both kingdoms. You see other prophets suffering the consequences for standing and declaring truth. But they did it, the glory of God, and we should ask God for that same boldness to declare that in our day and age as well. How else should we be affected by this passage? We should see that sin has consequences. It says, while each person is responsible for their sin, each person's sin has impacts beyond themselves. Yes, there were people who were trusting in the Lord in the northern and southern kingdoms, and yet they were going to suffer the consequences of the sins of others as well. So we have to be reminded that we are responsible for our sin and we will suffer the consequences for our sin, but often those consequences will impact others' lives as well. We should thank God for causing us to respond appropriately to God's coming judgment. We should thank God that he caused us to grieve over our sin and to seek forgiveness of our sin from him that is only found in Christ. We should thank God for causing us to believe the gospel, which has saved us from God's coming judgment. And for the last point of application, I want to read from Del Ralph Davis, who's an excellent commentator on the Old Testament related to this passage. He says this, The prophet should be a model for us. Far too often, divine judgment is a doctrine we affirm rather than a reality we abhor. 
we have far too little of the prophet's agony. He wailed over a people who had the scriptures and their promises, who had known the works and deliverances of God and who were turning their back on it all. I think of the analogous situation in Western European and North American culture, people who have enjoyed the light of the scriptures, the fruit of the Reformation, and the revivals now choose to walk by the light of their own darkness. And the hands of millions slide down the slimy sides of the bottomless pit. We can write books about the phenomenon, chart its course, uncover its causes, but we too seldom ever grieve over the tragedy. There are also sections of the church that disdain to follow a quote-unquote close reading of the Bible and plunge into doctrinal indifference and not surprisingly moral anarchy. Witness the hue and cry among some for approval and sanction of same-sex quote-unquote unions. It is easy for us to bemoan the trend, to shake our heads, but few of us pour out a torrent of agony and despair before the one who has been rejected. May God help us to have that kind of sorrow and grief over the condition of those who are lost around us. It is not difficult to see the equivalence between what we are reading of in Micah and what we see in our own country. And so may God help us to be those who are found crying out to him to be merciful to those who are in darkness, to be merciful to those who are on the broad way to hell. As we close, any questions or any comments? I'll also say this, God is sovereign over all human history. And the Bible tells us that we are living in the end, <laughs> end times. We are. And so while I'm not quick to say this represents that and that represents this, I can definitely say we see 
in many ways, Israel becoming more and more isolated. But at the same time, Israel is a nation. (laughs) They are a nation who is depending on their own military at this point in time. And they are a nation of people who largely have rejected the gospel. And so more important than defending that land (laughs) is the souls of the people that are there. Just as it is just as important for us to be concerned about the souls of many all throughout the world, even in our own communities who do not know the Lord. And so I'm not going to quickly say this this represents this, or, but we, also, we, we know we know that God is doing all things to ultimately point to and direct things to his, his eternal plan. Um, and, and we read in the Bible of what that eternal plan is, but ultimately we have to be praying for the salvation of those in Israel. We have to be praying for the salvation of all of those Muslim nations that are surrounding it. We have to be praying for our own nation as well because we are people who have done far more than other nations throughout biblical history, history that we read here in the Bible, who have received God's judgment. The killing of our babies in the womb to our sanctioning and support of perversity, all of these things we do in our own pride. And so ultimately, um, we, are, we should be moved to be praying for the souls of, of all people around us. But yes, this, in this particular moment, there is much that is pointing us to uh, what, we, what we see in the Bible for sure. Yeah. Let us pray. Our God and Father, Tonight, we feel the weight of your word. We see this destruction that is being prophesied, which ultimately came to pass in the northern and southern kingdoms, all because those who you had given your law to had turned away from it, had turned away from you and sought their own devices, had sought to worship other things and idols and their own created things instead of worshiping the one who created all things. Lord, we come to you tonight and we confess the sins of our own nation as well. We are far past the point of many other nations that have received your judgment. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have grief and sorrow over this nation's rejection of you. Lord, would you give us a grief and sorrow over, not first and foremost, our own sin, but for the sins of those around us who do not know you. And Lord, we pray that as we pray and even take time tonight to pray, that you would help us to pray with understanding, to pray according to your will, and to pray ultimately for your glory. The glory of your name would be known 
both here in New Jersey, in the United States, and all around the world. Lord, may we be impacted by what we have studied tonight, and may it bear fruit in our lives to the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.